All right, church, find Matthew chapter 6 in your Bible. As you do that, I just want to um, fill in some of the pieces that have happened over the last few weeks. Um, it's a lot to try and fill in, so I'll just be super brief about it. We, we basically had the doors to the sanctuary here open to us um, by First Baptist as they have continued to overwhelmingly bless us as their guests in this building. Uh, we sought for ways to serve them, and the opportunity presented itself, I think, at the Lord's hand, um, not only for us to meet in this room, but beginning today for an indefinite period, I'll be teaching for First Baptist at 11 a.m. as well, um, and just helping teach and, and uh, do whatever I can to serve their church. And so um, I encourage you guys, now that we're meeting in this space, as we go out to the lobby, we're going to have the fellowship hall set up for coffee and, and some donuts and that kind of stuff on Sundays after first service. But as you pass people in the hallways, say hi. Introduce yourself. Be friendly. We really want to continue to bless this church that has blessed us so much. And so um, I encourage you guys to get to know some of the people that come and go from First Baptist. And um, this service will continue to be transformed in what we've been doing. The second service will be much more traditional. Um, they're going to be doing hymns and kind of leading worship their way. I'm just filling in in the pulpit for a season. So um, as we um, continue to, to seek for ways to serve them, I just want to encourage you guys, reach out to them, be a blessing to them. And um, the Lord's going to continue to give us opportunities to do that, I think, and we want to be there for them. So, so welcome to the sanctuary. Um, it, it's on very rare occasion that I've been uh, able to teach in a position such as this, um, in a room like this, but I'm excited to be able to um, just be a closer part of what First Baptist is doing and, and to continue to see our churches bless each other. So Matthew chapter 6, um, we continue on this morning, and, and what an exciting chapter. Of scripture. As you know, BJ has taken a heavier teaching load, and that was by design over the last couple of months. Uh, we wanted to share a lot of the Lord's Prayer messages together, uh, as it was something that was very impactful for him and on his heart. And as we go forward, BJ and I will continue to teach together through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we've gone through this chapter, Jesus' teaching during the Sermon on the Mount has no shortage of challenge, of enlightenment, nor in difficulty in processing and applying what he's teaching us to do. Uh, there should never be a, um, a light approach on our part as we come to text that Jesus is preaching to his disciples. We should see a great weight in what he's commanding us to do and what he's calling us to do. And as we've talked over and over again in these first two chapters of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that this is all heart deep. Jesus isn't interested in just scratching the surface of our lives. He wants to penetrate and go inside, and he wants to shape and form our hearts. And I'm sure that you guys are aware of this. That's much harder work. I don't wear makeup, but it would be very easy for me to put on makeup and to dress up and look a certain way. It's much more, you should be thankful that I don't, but it's much more difficult for us to go deep down inside of our hearts and to open our hearts up to God and to let him come in. Behold, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. If you open, I will come in. But a lot of times we understand that when Jesus comes in, we're like, okay, it's great. Jesus is here. You can hang out in the living room because we cleaned it. You can hang out in the kitchen because I wiped the counters, maybe. And you can glance in the bedroom 
just a little bit. But there's a closet over there, and there's no way I'm allowing you in. And Jesus says, let's let's take a look at that closet. Let's take a look at that right there. Because he's not interested in just having a portion of you. He's not interested in being a part of your life. Jesus intends to be the nucleus of everything we are. Amen? He intends to be the center of us. And everything in our lives is to be built upon the rock, the foundation, the cornerstone. And everything is going to be measured against it. He is the measuring stone by which all the other stones of our lives take shape and are put into place. And so here, nearly 2,000 years after he preached it, the Sermon on the Mount continues to penetrate and draw our hearts to him. Now, don't see this as Jesus coming in, just slapping us around. He's gentle and lowly of heart. He's calling us to himself. He's seeking to develop and change and mature us for our own good and so that we might know him more. And we can make no mistake, the words of Christ are just as powerful and life-altering now as they were when he spoke them nearly 2,000 years ago. Amen? They're just as powerful now. They have lost none of their power or impact. And this morning, we're going to look at a third subject of Matthew chapter 6. I don't know if you guys have recognized this as we've gone through, but this is the third subject regarding how human beings reveal themselves to God in this chapter. The first way that we talked about how we reveal ourselves to God is through giving. And the second way that we reveal ourselves to God is how we pray. This morning, we get to talk about fasting. Yay! I mean, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but I don't skip many meals. But we're going to talk about fasting this morning because Jesus is going to go to the heart of why we do it. And we know how God has revealed himself to us. I I just want to explain this for us all. We know how God has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us through nature, through our conscience, through Jesus himself, the incarnation, through the word, his scriptures. He's revealed himself to us in many ways. But here in Matthew 6, Jesus wants to unveil these ways that we reveal ourselves to him. How we reveal ourselves to Jesus. And primarily, he focuses on what the condition of the heart behind the action should be. As his focus has been on heart, he's talking about the condition of our heart so that we can reveal ourselves and open ourselves up to him. And for some of us, I think the idea of revealing ourselves to God may seem unnecessary. It may seem unnecessary to us when we think about revealing ourselves to God because, after all, doesn't he know everything? We go to that passage in Psalm 139, verse 1, where it says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. Oh, done deal. He already knows me, right? However, if that's the end of the issue, if that's the verse that we go to and see, see, Psalm 139 says he searched me and know me. I, I don't have to reveal anything to God. He already knows. Then why at the end of that psalm? In two verses that we know so well, does the psalmist write, David, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Why is it that at the opening of Psalm 139, David recognizes that the Lord has searched him and that at the end of it, he asks God for him to search, to go deeper? It's because... There's a difference between God knowing us and us desiring to be known. Now, which are we? Am I a person that wants to be, that desires to be known by God, that opens my heart up to him, or that is merely satisfied with him knowing me, da-da-da, and we move on? 
I don't know about, about you guys, but I can't imagine that my marriage would be very healthy if I just took it for granted that my wife knows me, right? Well, she knows me. She knows I'm thankful, you know, that, uh, that uh, you know, I smiled when she blessed me in this way or that way. How much more is it when I intentionally open myself up? When I intentionally posture myself to be thankful, to be caring, to be loving, you understand there's a difference of being known and there being a desire to be known. I think on a human level, if we take for granted that our loved ones know us, but we don't intentionally open ourselves up to be known, we wouldn't come to the conclusion that our earthly relationships are very healthy. That they're not growing and reaching new depths of relationship or intimacy. If we understand that for our earthly relationships, that it takes work, that it takes intentionality, then why wouldn't we work and be intentional towards the Lord? Why wouldn't I be intentional in my relationship with him? These are ways that I reveal myself to God, that I open myself up to him. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. We must desire to be known by him and to, in these ways, as we give, as we pray, as we fast, these are things that we do unto the Lord. But the heart matters the framework of what we're talking about in Matthew 6 when we talk about revealing ourselves to God is the physical outpouring of a surrendered and transparent heart. It's the physical outpouring of a transparent heart, not mask wearing, not looking your best like the Pharisees did and being full of dead men's bones on the inside. So here in chapter 6, Jesus teaches us how to give, how to pray, and this morning, how to fast. I find it interesting that for all three of these revelations of man, Jesus presents a right and a wrong way. He presents both so you can contrast and say, okay, this is what you, do, this is what you don't do, and this is how you should do it. And all of those things go back to the heart. The person who will give off a sense of false piety through their actions towards God, and in all three cases, he reveals that they receive a reward now. They get instant gratification I don't know if you guys are hearing me correctly. You realize what we are after so often is instant gratification. I want my results now. What is it that I love about living in the culture that I live in? Smartphones. Information at my fingertips. Why? Because I don't have to go to the encyclopedia anymore. That takes work. That takes time. It takes digging. I can just Google everything now. How to make my wife happy. No, don't do, don't Google that. <laughs> Google knows me too well. It's like, leave. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she didn't even amen that. Okay, so you guys, we understand that in all of these cases, as Jesus shows us the results of false piety, the reward is always earthly, temporary, and ultimately worthless. The reward of false piety may be instantaneous, but it's earthly, it's temporary, and it's ultimately worthless. And so Jesus teaches us how to give, how to pray from a sincere heart in a way that honors God, gains the reward that the Father desires to give, which in contrast is heavenly, eternal, and priceless. In other words, it's probably going to take some patience. It's probably going to take some growing 
And so following suit with the prior two revelations of ourselves to God, Jesus now turns to fasting. So if you want to look with this, uh, we'll put it up on the screen as well. But if you want to look at the text with me, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18 reads this way. Jesus speaking, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head. And wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the topic of fasting is interesting to discuss in the vein of how we should go about it, um, what we should abstain from, you know, what I should fast from and for how long. I don't want to spend time on that this morning because even though fasting is what Jesus is speaking to, his focus and his gaze is upon the heart from which it comes from. And I believe that a people whose heart is longing for the Lord, desires for the Lord, seeking for the Lord will be a people who fasts. Now that may be different for different people. Jesus specifically here, to be truthful to the text, the word Jesus uses for fasting literally means one who has not eaten or one who is empty. So you could make a very strong case that he's talking about not eating, about taking time. And there's a lot of benefit to this, and we can have that discussion. There's a lot of benefit to fasting. But what's interesting is I don't think a lot of people fast in our culture anymore, especially the younger culture. I don't know a lot of people that fast. as. And, and you know what's cool? Maybe that's a good thing. I'm not saying come up to me and tell me if you're fasting. Be like, oh, I'm fasting, and look how tired I look. No, that's the Pharisees. We don't want to do that. But I had a conversation. I was part of a, a cohort in, in a school of worship that happened about seven years ago. It feels like it was yesterday. Um, but I was a cohort leader for this small group of guys. It was six guys all in total. So we went through this six-month worship school program. And as we were going through it, um, we, we got really close to each other. And we we're from all corners of the country. Some were from Florida. You know, I'm from here. We had another guy from Michigan. We had another guy from Texas. We, were, we, you know, we would come together to Spokane once a month and have our weekend of worship studying together, of, of musical worship and, and theology. And, and uh, we, we stayed closely knit together. Well, one of the guys, about a year after the, the worship school ended, got into a really bad place. His wife left him. Um, his mother died, and then he was shot um, on the streets in Texas and went through a really rough, rough season. Um, and he was having a hard time. I was like, you know, guys, I think we need to fast and pray for him. And as we um, started talking about it, I realized that I was the only one who had ever fasted before. And I'm not saying I do it often, but I had fasted before. None of the guys in my cohort, ranging from ages of 20 all the way to 30, had fasted before. None of them. And so I challenged them to do it. And the results were hilarious. Not because it was funny what we were doing. Obviously, we loved our friend and we wanted to minister and pray and and seek the Lord on his behalf. But these guys had never gone a full day without eating before. And so I got the funniest phone calls. One of them's like, I'm not going to make it. It's like, dude, it's 10 a.m. Like, <laughs> another one calls me. He's, a, he's actually a worship um, director in Spokane now. He calls me up and says, something bad happened. This is the day after. He goes, something bad happened last night. I was like, what? He goes, my wife found me in the bathroom, unconscious. I was like, do you have low blood sugar? He's like, no. 
I just passed out. <laughs> it's like, so I'm not saying that you should like just go fast a bunch of days and see what happens. But there are things we can fast from. And it was interesting to me how in, in the context of that situation that it feels like we don't deprive ourselves of things. We don't deprive ourselves very often something physical for a spiritual benefit. How often do I deprive myself of something physical for a season for a spiritual benefit? How many of you have gone out into the woods and not had your phone with you and actually enjoyed it? (laughs) I sure have. I find it a relief. I feel like it, it opens my ears to hear the Lord. I love going to some high mountain lake and sitting out there and fishing and just listening to the Lord, praying and seeking him in that place. That's like a fast. That's a fast of sorts. You are depriving yourself of something physical that's a distraction to open the ears of your heart. And I encourage it. There are ways to do this. In general, in the Old Testament, fasting was abused. And I say in general because as we study through the Old Testament, we very often find that the nation of Israel was in rebellion And as they were in that place of rebellion, they would fast as a piece of their religiosity, a way to try and earn God's favor, but they would do it as something that came from the external instead of the internal. Fasting became externalized as an empty ritual in which a pretense of piety was presented in this public image. Oh, look at me. I'm depriving myself because I'm so holy, which sounds very much like what Jesus describes in verse 16. It's religiosity at its worst. The lack of sincerity and the abundance of selfish motivation shown by Israel in many aspects through the Old Testament revealed itself through their fasting practices as well as brought the criticism of the prophets. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 12, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, if they fast, I will not hear their cry of despair. If they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them. Rather, I will finish them off by sword, famine, and plague. This is a loving God. That's not in contrast to who he is. This is revealing the heart of God that I want the heart of my people. I want the heart of my people. I don't want their show. I don't want their false piety. Cheery, isn't it? It's good news for us. We need this. Isaiah 58 verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read the whole passage. Is another eye-opening section of scripture regarding fasting hypocritically. I encourage you to read it. Isaiah 51 or 58, 1 through 10. For further study on, on fasting, it's a, a great passage to read. Hypocritic fasting has never pleased God. I'll say it again. Hypocritic fasting has never pleased God. Inauthentic piety or worship is offensive to him, and as Jesus warns against it, he highlights the pretentious steps that the hypocrites would take to draw attention to their false spirituality. Walking around with ash smeared on their faces. Did you see that? They make their faces unattractive, it says. It means unrecognizable in the original or disfigured. They would take ash and they would smear it on their faces so you would know I mean, if I took a bunch of dirt and rubbed it on my face and that was culturally a thing of, okay, he's fasting, how ridiculous would that be? Me walking around, oh, look at Mike, he's all disheartened, he has mud all over his face. He must be fasting. What a holy man. Right? That's all about getting attention. And Jesus says they're getting their reward. 
Although it was originally expressive of an actual repentance, in Jesus' time this had been just adopted as a mask of false holiness. There may have been some value to it in the past, but the value had been lost because the heart was not sincere. It was all lip service. It was all external. And Jesus teaches us a better way for man to reveal his devotion to God by doing so through sincere worship. Don't mix this up. We talk about musical worship a lot of times as that's the only form of worship. We're going to take a time of worship. Well, we're singing songs as part of worship, but you realize that your fasting is worship. Your praying is worship. Your giving is worship. All of your life is worship. And idolatry is simply us shifting the natural flow of our lives because we were not born to worship. We were born worshiping. And when your flow of life diverts into idolatry, it means that you have shifted that flow of your life to worship or honor something else above God. Because it's not a matter of, well, I'm not just worshiping the Lord right now. I'm just kind of stagnating. That means you're worshiping something else because the river of your life is flowing in the direction of worship always. If it's not unto God, it's unto something else. And this is part of our worship when we fast, when we seek the Lord in this way. And so Jesus says, and we need to hear this, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Can't have any dirty faces. That's not what he's getting at, right? He's not saying be pretentious. He's saying the opposite. Don't look like you're doing something like this. Don't intentionally go out of your way to draw attention to yourself and to your own personal holiness. Put oil on your head. Wash your face. These are cosmetic things. He says so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but it's obvious he says, to your father who is in secret. God knows why you're doing it. God knows why you're seeking him. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. In a culture that seeks attention based on what's portrayed, this is profound doctrine. I think this text gets even more potent the more social media invades our lives. You realize that they're doing studies right now that are showing that people, the more they use social media, the more depressed they are. You don't think that had a hand in lockdown? Instead of being out in the world, interacting with one another, going about our lives, we went into a stage of lockdown. And what was everyone doing in lockdown? Everyone else's life is better than mine. Look at that. I stood in that same place and they look a hundred times better than I did. Oh, I'm sure you guys never think that, right? Isn't it amazing that we'll look at a snapshot? Have you guys ever thought this way? Maybe this is a younger generation question, but I'm going to ask it. Have you ever looked at Instagram? I mean, like, I have never looked that good on any day of the week. (laughs) Neither have they. It's a snapshot. It's lighting. It's, I mean, it's all in a controlled thing. And right here, and yet... You know, like, I can't, that looks ridiculous, and it should. Have you ever been in traffic and had somebody doing that in traffic next to you, setting up the shot? And it's great because I'm sitting in my old 86 beater Corolla, you know, that's just vital. So eventually they look over at me, and I'm looking at them. Need to look to the left. I, mean, I don't know what you're going for. 
You guys, we get caught up in other people's lives. We get caught up in what they're doing. We start looking at the superficial and we start buying into it that that's where happiness is. How much time do we spend conditioning our hearts to the Lord? How much time am I spending on a device or on some form of entertainment that isn't connecting my heart to God? These priorities of heart matter. He says what you're doing internally is obvious to God. And what matters most is not what is seeable by other people. What matters most is the condition of your heart and what God sees because from that heart will flow a genuine life, a genuine love and life lived in Christ. And that will draw the attention and the glory to him. When I am loving Jesus and walking with him and when my heart is in intimate connection with his, the outpouring of my life will be authentic Christianity. And you know, it's going to draw attention to him instead of me. It's going to point to the goodness of God. And don't we need that? Followers of Christ are not to be manipulators drawing attention to ourselves for our own spirituality or lack thereof, we are tasked with reflecting Jesus. We are image bearers. And it is pure idolatry to draw attention to yourself for personal gain rather than drawing attention to the God who made you. Drawing attention to Jesus who loves you and saved you. That's why he said, if any man will come after me, he needs to have a sick Instagram. He says he will deny himself or herself and take up that cross and follow me. It's internal. We seek to inspire people. It's it's true, and I heard this said a long time ago, that manipulation is based on lie, but inspiration is based on truth. Manipulating people to think more of you is just getting them to buy into a lie that you're actually better, well, better than they are, better than anyone else. Inspiration has its sourcing in truth because if I'm going to inspire someone, they need to see Christ in me, the hope of glory. Amen? It's Christ in me. By the way, I'm not saying it's wrong to have an Instagram account. I have one. We have to glorify God with that. Or whatever social avenues you use. And don't let it consume you. If you recognize it does, can it? Get rid of it. It doesn't matter. What matters most is what Christ is doing in us and through us. The way you go about submitting yourself to God matters. And Jesus chose this moment of teaching to include instruction on these three things of giving, of prayer, and of fasting, and how we go about these things matters greatly. We're either accurately reflecting Christ or we're not. And so they should be considered in the dark, deep recesses of our heart. Lord, are you the king of these areas of my life? Our demeanor, even our washing, should be unto the Lord so that it isn't obvious to others what sacrifices we're making to God in secret. We think it's ridiculous when we think about someone walking around with an ash-smeared face. But how often do we do something similar to draw attention to ourselves and we just call it fashion? Or we call it, you know, it's what everyone else is doing. Whatever it is. This isn't condemnation. This is a fresh challenge for us to look at the motivations of our heart and why we do the things that we do. 
Jesus' words about fasting, they constitute a radically different approach to voluntary fasting. Jesus taught a robust faith that sought genuineness of relation to God through a pure heart. A genuine response of life that stems from a heart of purity that's humble before God. Jesus does not condemn fasting, nor does he forbid it. He does, however, give it a fresh meaning. Fasting is service to God. It's service to God. And because of that, it's an opportunity for us to draw near to him relationally. And the same as giving and prayer, fasting is a doorway to intimacy to the Lord. In other words, it's just something that opens up a doorway and an avenue for us to draw closer to him. When we do these things, we're expressing. Church, if if we desire a deeper relationship with Jesus and a more accurate reflection of his glory upon us, then we ought to repeat the words of the poem, of the poet who wrote this poem. O my life, thou shouldest keep perpetual Lent within the secret chamber of thy being an everlasting Easter on thy face. I'm going to read that again. O my life, thou shouldest keep perpetual Lent within the secret chamber of thy being an everlasting Easter on thy face. In other words, may my heart always be in a position of giving up whatever is necessary to glorify Christ. And may people always see the freshness of the resurrection on my face every day the joy of the Lord issuing out of my, my, my body. As a concluding thought, in Matthew chapter 4, we have an account of Jesus fasting. If you want to flip over to that, you can. I'll put it up on the screen as well. Matthew 4, the very first handful of verses, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Makes sense. Then the tempter approached him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He answered, It is written, Man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Begs the question, we discussed this amongst our our guys group in college, why would it have been sin for Jesus to turn stones to bread? How is that a sinful thing to do? The general conclusion that I came to and and our group came to as we studied was that this must have been a command of the Lord. The fast, and we can see it in the text as the Spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tempted, that the Spirit had also commanded him not to eat that he was on command by the Lord to hold himself back from this. Is there anything wrong with Jesus eating bread? In this situation, there was something wrong with Jesus eating bread. The father told him not to. And so he fasted. And when the devil said, turn these stones to bread, Jesus said, no, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Breaking the fast prematurely, I believe, would have been an act of disobedience, preventing Jesus, as we know, from fulfilling every act of righteousness, which he did. And Jesus aimed to end his fast when the test was over and no sooner. In other words, he had given this up and he wasn't going 
to relent from that until the Father gave him the go for it. What's interesting in the context of that is in Matthew 4.11, it shows that the fast ends and the angels came and began to serve Jesus. And the word serve in the original language means to serve as a table waiter. Most would agree that they fed him. But Jesus wasn't going to be fed and wasn't going to turn anything into bread until the Father did it. This is the essence of fasting. This is the essence of why we give things up. Because we do it to glorify God and we do it at the command of God. He's the one who's leading us through it. Jesus' fasting was also associated with dependence upon God. He was completely reliant and not willing to take it into his own hands. Boy, there's a lesson of itself, isn't there? How often are we taking things into our own hands? Clearly, God wants us to do this. By the way, that's Saul. Okay, Samuel's not here. We need to go. I'm just going to sacrifice these animals and get rolling. And Samuel's like, what did you do? You should have waited. The heart of Saul was impatient. The heart of Jesus was ever patient ever dependent upon the Father to provide for him. Church, if you find your heart has been self-motivated when it comes to fasting, when it comes to giving things up, if we've been practicing religiosity for our own attention, confess it. Confess it as sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know that verse well. Confess false piety to the Lord and recognize it in yourself. Recognize your need for Jesus. We have to be in a place where every aspect of our lives together is given to him and dependent upon him because we actually agree with what Jesus says to all of us that he is the vine and we are the branches The one who remains in me, Jesus said in John 15, 5, and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Church, our lives must be completely dependent upon his supply. And therefore, they must be lived in complete exoneration and glory for his name. I hope as we go forward through the Sermon on the Mount that our actions will start to flow and continue to flow from our hearts being shaped by him. I've shared this with you guys so many times. The Lord has absolutely, in the best way possible, wrecked me through the Sermon on the Mount. It's not that I'd never read this before. It's that approaching this text intentionally, looking at ourselves introspectively and being willing to relinquish things is going to be life-altering. I hope it's that for all of us. Let's bow our heads together. I'm with the worship team. Come on up. I want to just take a moment for um, individual prayer, for us to pray in our own hearts. And so if you bow your heads and close your eyes, let's just take a moment to search, to examine our own hearts, as Paul wrote, that we would see what's going on and that in the same breath as we are searching within our own hearts, examining, that we would say the words of David from Psalm 139. We both recognize, God, that you have searched and known us. But, Lord, we open ourselves up that you would search us further. Lord, that we would be desirous of your searching within us. 
that you would try us and know our thoughts, that you would see if there's any wicked way in us, that you would leave it, lead us in the way that is everlasting.